Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, in Africa rise and shine and at this hour, pressure is mounting for South Africa's National Prosecution Authority boss, Sean Abrams, to be removed or to resign. Chad's President Idris Derby says the multinational joint task force fighting the Boko Haram insurgency in Cameroon is facing major difficulties. In sports news, Patrick Lambie will captain South Africa against the Barbarians in London. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Divisions in Africa's position in relation to the International Criminal Court became clear following a debate of the court's annual report at the UN General Assembly. Several African countries joined their counterparts from Europe, the Asia-Pacific region and Latin America in pledging their continued support for the ICC in the open debate. A number of countries expressed their regret at recently confirmed withdrawals from the Rome Statute by South Africa and others, while Kenya and Burundi provided the most pointed denunciations of the court. South Africa did not take part in the debate. At the weekend, the United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon had a telephonic conversation with President Jacob Zuma in which he sought to persuade the South African government to reconsider its decision to leave the ICC. But Burundi's ambassador to the UN, who spoke through an interpreter, said more African countries are beginning to question the integrity of the International Criminal Court. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has ordered investigations to be conducted into a Human Rights Watch report alleging that security officers sexually abused women and girls in displaced people's camps in the northeast of the country. Buhari says he is shocked and worried at the claims. The allegations of sexual abuse, among others, were captured in a report released by Human Rights Watch stating the Nigerian government was not doing enough to protect displaced women rather and goals. A decision on whether to grant or dismiss South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's request on the release of the Public Protector's State Capture Report will be handed down in the Pretoria High Court. Zuma has urged, has argued he needed more time to respond to the questions from the public protector and an opportunity to view witnesses who have made damning allegations against him. The former public protector to Lima Dunsela's report into the alleged state capture by the Gupta family has been put under lock and key pending. Tuesday's court ruling. Constitutional law expert Pierre de Foss. Well, it's very significant because the court is going to have to decide whether the state capture report must be made public or whether it will remain secret. 
if there's information in there that implicates the president in the so-called state capture, if there's information that suggests that the president has really delegated his power to appoint ministers to a certain family, then it will potentially have devastating political consequences for the president. Tanzania has suspended HIV-AIDS prevention programs for gay men in the latest crackdown on the high-risk group. The Health Minister, Umi Welimu, says the government received reports that some local non-government organizations are promoting same-sex relationships. Gay sex is illegal in Tanzania and punishable by up to 30 years in prison. The Health Minister says the government will continue to provide HIV-AIDS services to adolescent girls, drug users and other groups. About 1.5 million people in Tanzania are living with HIV. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Thank you. And pressure is mounting for South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority boss, Sean Abrams, to be removed or to resign. Yesterday, Abrams announced the dropping of fraud charges against Finance Minister Pravin Gordon and two more South African Revenue Services officials, Opa Mahashula and Ivan Pillay. The three were due to appear in the Pretoria Regional Court on Wednesday in connection with Pillay's early retirement package payout in 2010. The NPA regarded this as irregular. Abrams cited misinformation as the reason for his decision to charge the minister. Amos Pachel reports. I am of the view that this matter could easily have been clarified had there been proper engagement and cooperation between the Hawks and Mr. Mahashula, Mr. Pillay, and Minister Godan. In the circumstances, I have decided to overrule the decision to prosecute Mr. Mahashula, Mr. Pillay, and Minister Godan on the charges listed in the summonses. As such, I have directed the summonses to be withdrawn with immediate effect. NPA head Sean Abrams made the announcement just 48 hours before Minister Godan Ivan Pillay and Oba Mahashule's formal court appearance on fraud charges. This marks an end to weeks of speculation on whether Godan is being targeted for interrogating business deals between the state and the politically connected Gupta family. But the economic knock-on effects and personal reputation damage following an earlier decision to charge the three, particularly Minister Godan, remain. Summonses were served on him at a time when he was engaged in a campaign to rescue the country from economic woes ahead of another visit by rating agencies and Abrams has no regrets. I certainly, I certainly do not owe anybody an apology. I certainly do not. Freedom Under Law and the Helen Sussman Foundation alerted the NPA to the existence of a legal opinion by SARS Deputy Director General Flock Symington. Abrams says he considered the 2009 memo, which found that there was no technical reasons why Pillay could not retire early and be reappointed. He says the memo was never made available to him prior to saving Godan, Pillay and Mahashule with summonses, and he only made a decision to pursue charges based on information contained in the docket. While this point to lack of credibility within the NPA, Abrams says he will not resign and he remained confident about the integrity of the institution. That's precisely why I have called uh, this press briefing and or press announcement. 
because I'm taking you into my confidence as to what has transpired in this matter, what material was placed before me in reviewing the matter. This is what I call transparency. And I'm accounting, I'm accounting to you. I'm telling you this is what I had before me. This is what I decided as a result of what I had before me. And that's why I'm more upbeat than ever about the integrity of the institution. We must always do what's right. We must always do what the law, what is right within the confines of the rule of law and the constitution. Now, I've reviewed this matter. Neither Mr. Pillay, nor Mr. Godan, nor Mr. Mahashula has spent a day in court. Freedom Under Law says it is surprised that Abrams has not seen it fit to apologize to Godan after tainting his reputation. Former Constitutional Court Judge Justice Johan Grichler says the fraud charges against Godan, Ivan Play and Obama Rashule did tremendous damage to the country. I suspect that there was probably malice way back when the charges were started because nobody at that stage bothered to look whether there was any evidence of any criminal intent. And it was only now at the 11th hour when we drew the attention of the National Prosecuting Authority to the existence of a legal opinion dated from the time of the transaction, which showed that the people acted in good faith, that they had a second thought about it. They had never thought that these people could possibly be honest men, they were desperate to prove that they were guilty. Civil society organizations and some senior ANC members as well as opposition parties previously criticized the NPA for the decision to prosecute Kodan. The ANC has welcomed the decision to drop charges. It however called on the appointing authority to engage the NPA leadership to avoid a repeat of this situation. The EFF has called on the general counsel of the bar to remove Abrams from the role of advocates. DA leader Musi Maimani says they also want Abrams out. We must investigate whether he's fit to hold office. And I'm asking for Parliament to in fact do its work. Secondly, we are saying Jacob Zuma must suspend him until the inquiry is completed. Because it's clear that he is costing South Africa's credibility by making up charges. If he was serious about these charges, he would obey the Houghton North High Court ruling that said all the charges that the DA has brought against Jacob Zuma, 738 charges. He must charge Jacob Zuma as well. The SACP agrees with the DA, party spokesperson Alex Mashilo. We are making a call to Parliament to hold an agent inquiry into the fitness to hold office of the NPA director, Sean Abrahams, to amend the NPA Act to provide for a parliamentary selection process in the appointment of the head of the NPA. And we are calling for steps to be taken against Hawks officials who allegedly staged a hostage at SARS pursuing Minister Godan at all costs. In solidarity with Godan, different organizations had organized rallies and marches on Wednesday, the day when he was expected in court. While all campaigns are now deemed unnecessary, the EFF is going ahead with its planned shutdown in the capital, Tswane. I'm Amos Power in Pretoria. Meanwhile, markets have welcomed the news that charges against South Africa's finance minister, Pravin Gordon, have been dropped. The rand strengthened over 2% against the dollar. It was trading at 13 rand 55 just before the afternoon. Tsepamungwai reports. The move to drop the charges against the finance minister removes some of uncertainty in terms of policy direction and implementation. The rand began to regain strength with news in the past week 
that the National Prosecution's Authority will probably review the charges. Political uncertainty damages business confidence, hurting private sector investment. Yana Leroux is with ETM Analytics. The market welcomed uh, the latest news regarding uh, Finance Minister Gordon. The RAND rallied uh, very aggressively in response to the news. It traded briefly back down to 13 Rand 50 against the dollar, and it is over 2% stronger on the session, and it's now back at levels that we saw late in August, so it's at the best level in uh, two months. So this is certainly a welcome development. It's an indication that investor confidence has been restored to some degree. South Africa still has another rating review hurdle to overcome. Political certainty, the state of government finances and growth prospects are some of the factors that will be considered by rating agencies. Stanley Chief Economist is Kevin Links. I think the Minister of Finance did very well in the medium-term budget policy statement. I thought it was a strong statement. It does show that South Africa, though, is under pressure and that without economic growth, we're going to see further fiscal slippage. So I think having the Minister of Finance more confident in his role, perhaps he can move ahead with some of his policy initiatives. It doesn't mean that the credit rating risk has gone away. It remains firmly in place. We just need to make sure that we do more in terms of policy clarity and find ways to lift South Africa's growth rate in the coming year or two. Fitch and SNP country reviews are due early in December. Tsepo Johannesburg. Chad's president Idris rather a decision on whether to grant or dismiss a request by South Africa's President Jacob Zuma that the release of the Public Protector State Capture Report will be handed down at the Pretoria High Court today. President Zuma has defended his decision to interdict the release of the alleged State Capture Report. He has argued that he needs more time to respond to the questions from the Public Protector and an opportunity to interview witnesses who have made damning allegations against the report by former public protector advocate Tulimadonsela into arrested capture was put under lock and key pending a court ruling this morning. It's alleged that the report has made adverse findings against President Jacob Zuma, some cabinet ministers and the wealthy Gupta family, which has been accused of having undue influence over the president. The Guptas have been accused of, amongst others, influencing the appointment of cabinet ministers board members and executives of state-owned enterprises. They've also been accused of using their association with President Zuma to secure multi-billion rent state contracts. This is how constitutional law expert Pierre DeForce has described today's court battle over the release of the state capture report. Well, it's very significant because the court is going to have to decide whether the state capture report must be made public or whether it will remain secret. If there is information in there that implicates the president in the so-called state capture, if there is information that suggests that the president has really delegated his power to appoint ministers to a certain family, then it will potentially have devastating political consequences for the president. In his fight-back strategy, President Zuma is demanding that he be accorded an opportunity to question witnesses who made presentations to former public protector advocate Tulima Donsela. Fielding questions at the National Council of Provinces in Cape Town last week, President Zuma said he was within his legal rights to interdict the release of the state capture report. 
that as a citizen of this country, I have a right, a legal right, to exercise my rights. And this is what I've done in, the ter- in terms of the public protector's report. I interdicted it because he was, she was going to issue a report, having not talked to me or asked me questions. And it is within my right. It is, in fact, within the act of the public protector that those who are to be questioned, they have a right to do what I've done. The official opposition DA has launched a campaign to oppose President Zuma's bid to interdict the release of the state capture report. DA leader Musi Maimani elaborates. The case that we have put against Jacob Zuma to oppose his interdict in the matter of the release of the state capture report, we are going to continue to fight for that. That matter has been said to be heard for two days. Therefore, on Wednesday, we are simply asking, as the original complainant, we would like that report because we want it. We want to ensure that we can hold those who are responsible for state capture to be held accountable. The truth of the matter is that the former public protector, Tuli Matonsel, stood up and said the report was final. Newly appointed public protector advocate Busisiwe Mkwebana has already declared that she will not oppose the court action by opposition parties to have the state capture report released. Tsepo Ikaneng in Pretoria. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Our Chad's President Idris Derby says the multinational joint task force fighting the Boko Haram insurgency in Cameroon Chad, Nigeria and Niger is finding it difficult crushing terrorists who are hiding in communities around the Lake Chad Basin. A Chadian leader who was speaking on Friday at the end of a visit to Cameroon says it is imperative for the population to help the military by denouncing suspected Boko Haram fighters. Muki Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. Idris Deby says the firepower of the Boko Haram terrorist group has been greatly reduced by the multinational joint task force, causing the militant group to resort to cowardly moves, such as taking people hostage for ransoms, stealing cattle and food, and deceiving people, especially women and young girls, to carry out suicide missions just to give an impression they are still strong. Boko Haram was Boko Haram he says the Boko Haram of today is no longer the Boko Haram of 2014 when it could attack on a large scale. He says it became a shadow of itself when its fighters started hiding as ordinary people in communities to cause havoc and that he is congratulating people living around Lake Chad for creating self-defense groups 
to fight the terrorists. But he adds that in order for the group to be completely eradicated, people should denounce suspects in their communities. He says without peace, stability and security, Central African countries will never attain their development objectives. President Deby says the Sambisa forest that straddles Cameroon and the 40 million inhabitants of the Lake Chad area spread across Cameroon, Nigeria, Chad, Niger and Benin are the most vulnerable to Boko Haram atrocities because it has remained the terrorist group's stronghold. He says if the population does not collaborate by reporting suspects, Poverty levels will continue to increase as many schools have remained closed and poverty reduction programs will become more difficult to execute. The president says the military has been finding it difficult to organize raids in the area because the terrorists are using civilians as human shields. The United Nations reports that the Boko Haram insurgency in Nigeria and its spillover to neighboring countries have caused the displacement of over 2.7 million people, generating multiple challenges, especially in the Lake Chad Basin. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. Now to South Sudan, where the authorities in Juba and the Ethiopian government have signed an agreement to cooperate militarily. This comes at a time when rebel leader Riek Machar is planning to use force to remove President Salva Kiir from power. James Shimanyula has more. Ethiopian Prime Minister Hele Mariam Dusalen, the current head of the regional trade bloc IGAD, which is based in Djibouti, has just concluded a short visit to South Sudan, where his government signed crucial agreements with the Yuba authorities. One of the agreements allows Ethiopia to enter South Sudan to help it militarily to fight rebels led by former Vice President Riek Machar. Before returning home, the Ethiopian leader assured South Sudan President Salva Kiir that his country will not support a rebellion that the former Vice President Riek Machar has vowed to unleash in the country to unseat Kiir. We are committed to work with the government of the national transitional government and I think the peace process and implementation process has to go smoothly on behalf of IGAD the chair of the IGAD leaders, I also reaffirm IGAD's commitment to work for peace and stability in South Sudan. We will not support an armed struggling group, both in Ethiopia and South Sudan, and will cooperate in a strong army-to-army cooperation, where the president has agreed to send his uh, chief of staff quickly to Addis Ababa, and they will work together, making our borders the military cooperation agreement signed by Ethiopia and South Sudan means before even former Vice President Riek Machar thinks of launching his war against the Juba government, Ethiopian troops fighting alongside South Sudan forces will have blocked him from advancing towards the capital Juba. Speaking in the presence of Ethiopian Prime Minister Hele Mariam Dusalen, South Sudan President Salva Kiir, also assured his visitor that his country 
and Ethiopia will review all agreements that the two countries have signed, including an agreement on security. We will be reviewing all the agreements. These agreements will benefit the two countries, and we are hopeful that many things will change. That was South Sudan President Salva Kiir. However, President Kiir did not explain how and say when, as he put it, many things will change. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Chimanyula. On Friday, Kenya witnessed the swearing-in of new judge of the Supreme Court of Kenya and Deputy Chief Justice. A swearing-in that took place in the State House in Nairobi in the presence of President Uhuru Kenyatta and other high-profile delegates showed satisfaction of Kenyans who confidently believe that they will lead without bias. Diane Yamanyongi reports from Mombasa. I, Isaac Lenaula, judge of the Supreme Court, do swear in the name of the mighty God to diligently serve the people and the Republic of Kenya and to impartially do justice in accordance with this constitution as by law established and the laws and customs of the Republic without any fear, favor, bias, affection, ill will, prejudice or any political, religious or other influence. In the exercise of judicial functions entrusted to me, I let at all times <clears throat> and the best of my knowledge and ability protect, administer and defend this constitution with a view to upholding the dignity and the respect for the judiciary and the justice of Kenya and promoting fairness, independence, competence and integrity within it. So help me God. That was the new voice of new judge of Supreme Court of Kenya, Justice Isaac Lenaola, during the swearing-in ceremony at State House in Nairobi. Lenaola was among other judges that was vetted in public by the Judicial Service Commission in Nairobi to replace Justice Philip Tonoi, who was forced to retire after attaining the age of 70. After vetting, the Judicial Service Commission forwarded Lenaola's name to the National Assembly before presenting to President Kenyatta to consent it. During the swearing-in, also Lady Justice Philomena Mwilu, who will serve as Kenya's third Deputy Chief Justice, was also sworn in. I, Philomena Betemwilu, Deputy Chief Justice and Vice President of the Supreme Court, do swear in the name of the Almighty God to diligently serve the people and the Republic of Kenya and to impartially do justice in accordance with this constitution as by law established and the laws and customs of the Republic without any fear, favor, bias, affection, ill will, prejudice, or any political, religious, or other influence. In the exercise of the judicial functions entrusted to me, I will at all times and to the best of my knowledge and ability protect, administer, and defend this constitution with a view to upholding the dignity and the respect for the judiciary and the judicial system of Kenya and promoting fairness, independence, competence, and integrity within it. So help me God. Lady Justice Philomena Mwilu replaces Kalpana Rawal, who retired after attaining 70 years. In his remarks, President Kenyatta urged the two to work diligently and faithfully for the Kenyans, saying that he is ready to work hand-in-hand with the judicial system. We serve the same people. We work for the same people. We are supposed to be complementary to one another. We are not in competition. We need to be able to consult, we need to be able to talk to one another. In order for us to be able to best serve the people of this republic, we will support you to the fullest in order to enable you 
to discharge your duties to the people and to our republic. That was Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta and I am Dana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kultanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you in the headlines divisions in Africa's position in relation to the International Criminal Court became clear following a debate of the court's annual report in the UN General Assembly. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has ordered investigations into a Human Rights Watch report alleging security officers sexually abused women and girls in displaced people's camps in the northeast of the country. And South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's application to stop the release of the Public Protector's report on the so-called state capture is set to start in the High Court in the capital Pretoria in less than two hours. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Thank you, Anne. South Africa's National Assembly is expected to hold a snap debate this afternoon on the country's relationship with the International Monetary Fund. This comes as the country is facing the prospect of sluggish economic growth. This is just one of the activities which will take place in Parliament this week. Abongwe Kobokana has more. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa will also brief the National Assembly on Wednesday on progress made by the National Economic Development 
and Labour Council, known as NEDLEC. With regard to the national minimum wage, again Ramaphosa will respond to oral questions from MPs on the work of government. Parliament is also expected to discuss South Africa's withdrawal from the International Criminal Court. The Public Finance Management Act requires all government departments and entities to submit their annual reports six months after the end of each financial year. The deadline to this was in September. Scopa Chepesin Temba Kodi says most government departments and entities have failed to meet their deadlines. We think that if we, if we don't need this in the bud, then we'll have a situation where in year in and year out we may have delays. We've seen in other countries where uh, public account committees are dealing with annual reports that are five years, ten years old uh, because of uh, unnecessary delays. And we don't want that to creep uh, in South Africa. We have full trust in the professionalism of the Auditor General. We don't think that uh, it is correct for, for departments to, to be bargaining and actually to be mounting such massive pushback. Godi says his committee is concerned about this despite the fact that some departments have given their reasons for non-compliance to the speaker. Um, the picture is very bad. It is horrifying to look at the hundreds of millions and billions of friends that have been used without following proper procedures. Sure. And at a time when our country is uh, reeling from sluggish economic growth, with demands from students and all sectors of society, the first thing we need to do is to make sure that the little resources that we have, we utilize and manage them properly. Next week, the Portfolio Committee on Communication is expected to begin its inquiry into the affairs of the SABC, which will include a probe into the fitness of the remaining members of the SABC board to hold office. Abongwe Kobokane Parliament. With this week being World Stroke Week, the South African private emergency medical company ER24 is urging people to educate themselves about the condition. Stroke is a common and serious condition affecting millions of people around the globe. Chitra Bodasing, spokesperson for ER24, explains what a stroke is. A stroke occurs when blood flow to parts of the brain is cut off. A stroke is a serious condition and it affects millions of people around the globe. It could lead to death or disability, hence uh, people are urged to educate themselves about the condition. Tell us about the different types of strokes and how do they differ? There are different types of stroke. Um, The most common is the ischemic stroke, which occurs when a blood vessel supplying blood to part of the brain becomes blocked by a blood clot. The blood clot could either form in an artery or in the brain or travel to the brain through a blood vessel from another part of the body. Uh, The second less common but it is more uh, likely fatal type of stroke is the hemorrhagic stroke, which occurs when a blood vessel in the brain leaks or bursts that ruptures, causing bleeding. What are some of the most common signs of a stroke, and why is speed in getting care so important? The best way um, to find out if you or someone you are with is having a stroke is to conduct a FAST test. That is F-A-S-T. The F stands for a face, so you would need to check if the one side of the person's face is drooping. The person should try to smile or show their teeth, and if one side is drooping, it could be having a stroke. The A in FAST stands for the arm, that is the person should keep their arms raised for a few seconds, 
And if the one arm drifts down or is weak, they could be having a stroke. The S in fast stands for speech. The person should try to speak. If there is slurring or if the person struggles to understand or repeat any sentence, they could be having a stroke. And then lastly would be the T, uh, which is time. If the person experiences any of the, they should call emergency services immediately. And if a person experiences any sudden or persistent changes, such as sudden limpness on one side, decreased eyesight, and loss or, or balance, they should seek medical assistance. Recognizing these signs of a stroke early and seeking urgent medical attention is of utmost importance as it increases the person's chances of survival and recovery. Let's talk about the risk factors that increase a person's chance of having a stroke. What do they include? Hypertension, or commonly known as high blood pressure, is the leading cause of strokes as well as heart attacks in South Africa. Risk factors for stroke also include diabetes, high cholesterol, smoking as well as excessive alcohol intake, and heart disease as well as stress. Most strokes can be avoided by managing these risk factors. Chitra, I found it interesting that children are not immune to stroke. How common is it in children? Anyone can have a stroke, be it a child or an adult. It may not be as common in kids as adults, but you do get teenagers, newborns, young children are all at risk. You do find that there is a lot of focus on adults and stroke, but children are at risk too. And common risk factors for stroke in children vary, and they could include congenital heart defects, immune disorders, and problems during pregnancy, such as high blood pressure. Is this something that can be treated? Many strokes can be reversed if treated before the affected brain tissue dies. Strokes can be reversed if the person gets to the right hospital soon after onset of the stroke. Hence the importance of immediate medical assistance. But before getting to that stage, people should actually manage risk factors to decrease their risk. Just before I let you go, how best do you think the global stroke burden can be addressed? One of the most important things is for people to take this condition seriously and to educate themselves about the condition. You know, to pay more attention to their lifestyles and address any health issues. They should lead a healthier lifestyle, for example, quitting smoking, reducing alcohol intake, making the right food choices such as reducing salt and sugar intake, as well as including moderate exercise into your daily routine. These can make a positive difference and reduce your chances of having a stroke. That was Chitra Bodhisattva, spokesperson for the South African private emergency medical company Air24, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Head of the UN Food Agency in Somalia says that more than 5 million people in Somalia do not have enough to eat and over a million require life-saving aid. The World Food Program and its partners are stepping up efforts to help communities cope with a severe drought exacerbated by El Nino weather conditions. The ability of communities who have lived through four successive poor rainy seasons has been stretched to the limit. Laurent Bukere has been speaking to Jocelyn Sambira about his concerns regarding the deteriorating food insecurity and what his office is doing to avoid a full-blown crisis. What we are seeing at the moment is a further deterioration of the drought situation in the north where in Puntland the rains have not come and in the south where we normally see much more rainfall, also in the south a complete dry situation where the rains have not started this season 
and where we see most of the boreholes or the water sources drying up in addition to the food security and nutrition being exacerbated. So I think we are very concerned moving forward. Uh, we have about 5 million people food insecure. Uh, over 1 million are acutely food insecure, which means that they require life-saving assistance. And I think this is kind of the, the, the current situation. Describe for us what some of the impacts are. What happens to a family that cannot cultivate its own food anymore? Families, when they have like a few animals, that is a source of milk for the children. It's a source of basic fat for the nutrition, and it's a source of income. When you see the animals uh, getting a body condition, which is extremely worrying, or you see the animals dying, that is a sign that the communities are depleting their resources. So we see that as damaging. We have seen that over the last six months. When we look at the more agricultural land, uh, we have seen the, the production in the last season being extremely damaged. We have lost a very large part of the crop in the season. We see the prices are increasing. Unfortunately, the agricultural production is problematic twofold. One, in terms of having available stocks, but also for the most poor and vulnerable, even when the stocks are there, they need to be having the resources to be able to go and buy them. What are some of the things that WFP is doing to help people who are affected by this? In the places where food is available, we provide them with uh, food vouchers in the form of a digital card to go shopping. We have established in Somalia a network of hundreds of shops which are registered, which are screened for quality and for security records. Where food is not available, we have to bring it in the country. We have a, a large logistical operations. Uh, which include uh, boat transport, which include air transport and road transport, so it's quite challenging. And we focus on the absolute most vulnerable, which means the household which are either extremely acutely vulnerable, but also on the people themselves who are the most vulnerable, which in our focus, the children, in particular the children under five years of age. What are some of the challenges that you're facing in getting food, essential life-saving food to people in need? We are uh, a voluntary funded organization, which I think comes with a great plus, which I think keep us uh, focused on the most effective solutions, but which is also a challenge for us and for our donors. When it comes to a more physical challenge, the operational context, the security context in Somalia remain extremely precarious. We see a number of areas that have been I would say stabilized, recovered, are accessible, but only by air. The road transport is still not possible. We still have a number of areas which we are only reaching by air. The last one, it's a, I want to call it an opportunity, but the risk at the same time, we see the elections are uh, proceeding in Somalia. We see this as a, as a great opportunity to, to get the country further on the road to recovery and development. And uh, we will be monitoring the, the situation very carefully. That was head of the UN Food Agency in Somalia, Laurent Bukere, speaking to UN Radio's Jocelyn Sambira.
The loss of global wildlife since the 1970s has worsened and we are on track to make it two-thirds by 2020. This is according to the surveys carried out by BirdLife International and the Red List on Endangered Species. Stuart Butchat, head of science at BirdLife International, says the degradation of ecosystems is a contributory factor. So the latest Living Planet Index released in the Living Planet Report adds to a growing body of evidence that nature across the planet is in decline. So for example, it supports the finding of the Red List Index, which shows that the extinction risk is increasing for the world's birds, mammals, amphibians, and various other groups, as the rate at which species are moving towards extinction is increasing. And it's consistent with the results from wild bird indices developed by BirdLife International and others from North America and from Europe, showing that sort of characteristics of different the characteristic of different habitats have declined by more than twenty percent over the last three decades or so, with the largest population declines, particularly in farmland across Europe and uh, in grasslands and arid lands in North America. And we're starting to find similar pictures from other parts of the world where evidence is becoming available. And similarly, it's consistent with data from the remote sensing information from satellites showing the increasing loss and degradation of the world's forests and wetlands, for example. Is this thing happening naturally or are there any factors that are leading towards that situation? Well, we understand pretty well what the major drivers of declines are in biodiversity. It's particularly habitat loss and degradation driven by unsustainable agriculture. That was Stuart Butchat, Head of Science at BirdLife International, on the line from Cambridge in England, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. And I'm Tabi Solohoko with an economics update. The World Energy Cities Partnership Conference continues in Cape Town, South Africa. Delegates from 13 cities around the world are promoting opportunities in oil, gas and renewable energy. Chief Executive Officer of Green Cape, Mike uh, Malke, says the meeting is to share ideas with other cities to learn how they manage and distribute uh, energy sources to the respective populations. Namibia has dropped four places to a ranking of 108 in the latest World Bank Ease of Doing Business report. Namibia's biggest trading partner, South Africa, dropped two places to 74. Angola is ranked a place down at 182, while Botswana is ranked 71st, one place down. Malawi has improved its rankings impressively from 141 last year to 133. Lesotho has also improved its ranking by two places to 100, while the Democratic Republic of Congo is ranked 184th, the same as last year. Meanwhile, Mozambique has improved its ranking by three places to 137. Seychelles' ranking has remained the same as last year at 93. Swaziland dropped three places to 111. Madagascar improved by two places to 167. Mauritius, one of the shining stars of the southern African region, saw its ranking dropping 
7 places to 49. Zambia dropped by 4 places to 98, while Zimbabwe also dropped by 4 places to 161. One of the oldest retail stores in South Africa, Statafits, has applied for voluntary business rescue, citing a tough economic climate. The move is usually the last resort as it often leads to liquidation. As a company, which was established in Cape Town more than 100 years ago, is facing depressed sales numbers. The World Bank warns that Kenya's growth of prospects could worsen if banks reduce the credit to the private sector and low-income households. This comes amid fears that lenders might cut off credit flow to the economy due to the recently introduced interest rate caps on loans. It's now six weeks since the enactment of the Banking Amendment Act 2016, which caps commercial interest rates at 400 basis points above the central bank's benchmark rate. Indicators at the Sour on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are the voice that spreads the word. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.64 in South Africa, 10.30 in Botswana, 9.64 in Zambia, 8.2 to the British pound, 9.1 to the euro, gold $1,277, platinum $9.76 an ounce, Brent crude oil $48.90 a barrel. My name is Tabiso Lohoko. Sports updates up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, starting off with rugby news. Springbok coach Alistair Kutsier has confirmed that Patrick Lambie will captain South Africa in the international match against the Barbarians at Wembley Stadium in London on Saturday. Adrian Strauss, who has led the Springboks in all of their nine tests so far this year, will be arrested for the Barbarians match. Kutsier will name the Springbok match 23 on Thursday afternoon. No test caps will be awarded for this match, and with this regular captain not considered for the match, Gutsia says Lambi is a natural choice for the captaincy against the Barbarians. Meanwhile, Gutsia is looking forward to his side's first outing of the end-of-year tour when they take on the Barbarians at Wembley. Gutsia will take particular interest in the string of South African players that will be playing in the Barbarians team and believes that they are a side that have a fine balance between youth and experience. We're very excited about playing against uh, a quality barbarian side. Uh, I think um, Robbie Deans has assembled a squad uh, with a lot of experience and also exciting young players. If you look at the composition of the squad, the couple of South African players in the form of Robert Dupria, Kwaja Smith, uh, Erwan Ackerman and Clayton Blomikis are all included, the you know, young players. That uh, I'll be really keen to have a look at as well. And then, uh, you know, players like Andy Ellis, Sam Carter, Brumbies, Andy Ellis from Cobalco Steelers, New Zealand, uh, Reggie Goods, Hurricanes, and uh, Brett Shields, Hurricanes. So, uh, and, and Ruan Pinar as well. In cricket news, Zimbabwe limped to lunch on 174 for six in the first innings on the third morning of the first test against Sri Lanka in Harare. 
still trailing by 363 runs. Even the follow-on target of 338 looks an insurmountable obstacle as Suranga Lakmal and Rangana Herath both took two wickets in the morning session to bat the host family in the mire. Peter Moore, 25 not out, and Graham Kramer, 10 not out, are the two batsmen at the crease at the break. Zimbabwe resumed the day on 88 for 1, facing a massive first innings total of 537 from Sri Lanka. And the Proteas will lean on the confidence of their past successes as they prepare for the first test against Australia starting at the Waka ground on Thursday. Fast bowler Dale Stain, who is one of four players in the current squad to have been part of the double against Australia. Hashim Amla, JP Dumini and Monet Mokel being the others says it's exciting to be back at the fortress that holds many fond memories for the team. Stain says they won't be underestimating Australia following their host 3-0 loss to Sri Lanka and the Proteas 5-0 ODI win earlier this month. But he rather expects a competitive on-field battle played in the right spirit and above the line. The Proteas may be missing their star batsman A.B. Devilas, but similar to 2008 and also a growing trend around the Proteas squads over the years, it creates an opportunity for a newcomer to make an impact on one of the toughest away series on the calendar. Locally, Build Nut Cape Cobra's veteran Justin Ontong says he believes that they are ready to go into the upcoming T20 challenge with a fresh approach following off-field incidences that have visibly affected the Sunfall Series 4-day challenge form. With the Cobra's coach Paul Adams under fire facing a CCMA case to keep his occupation, Ontong still believes there is a lot to play for when dining on the Cobra's jersey irrespective of what is happening in the boardroom. Obviously, people down in the Cape like to see the side do well, perform well. Over the years, we've always competed. We've always been there and thereabouts. Uh, if we're not in finals, we're winning trophies. Like That expectation over the years has built up uh, in the Cape. So, yeah, obviously, there is some pressure on us to perform and please our fans. So, so yeah, um, we must just relish that uh, pressure and, and go out there and enjoy ourselves. Yeah, obviously, there's been a lot going on with the coach in that. Um, so, like I said, if you're not winning, obviously, the morale in the, in the camp will be a little bit down. There's a lot of pride to play for. We're playing for the badge. Um, we're very fortunate to be playing in that team and the legacy that the guys want to leave behind. So there's lots to play for, the pride and the passion, the morale of one win away. And hopefully this weekend, if we can get a win and build up nicely to the T20 format, that will be good. And finally, with golf news, the withdrawal of Rory McElroy and Patrick Reed and a couple of other players from this week's Turkish Airlines Open wasn't the best news for the tournament, but at the same time, it was good tidings for several South Africans, most notably George Kutsier. Last week, Kutsier wasn't even in the Turkey showpiece, but the decision by the Northern Irish man and the American not to play helped the talented Pretoria Country Club professional move up the race to Dubai's points list and into the no-cut 76-man lineup. The 95,000 US South African Rands shootout begins on Thursday at the Carrier Golf Club at the Regnam Carrier Resort and Spa near the ancient city of Antalya on Turkey's Mediterranean coast. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, 
Tamika na Ungai. Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, pressure is mounting for South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority boss John Abrams to be removed or to resign. And Chad's President Idris Derby says the multinational joint task force fighting the Boko Haram insurgency in Cameroon is facing major difficulties. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebo Munamukhulu, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Our taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Zahara with a track titled Loliwe. Sweet, sweet,